Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. I'm Jacob Butler, and I'm the Assistant Outreach Officer here at the Cavendish Lab. Hi, I'm Paolo Molinini, and I'm a postdoc in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish. Our guest this month is Joanna Piotrowska, a PhD student looking at galaxy formation and evolution in the group of Professor Roberto Maiolino. By using a mix of observational cosmology and numerical simulations, Joanna is studying how supermassive black holes, the giant black holes thought to reside at the centre of every galaxy, can influence star formation, in particular the mystery of why certain galaxies cease to generate any new stars. Joanna was born in Warsaw, Poland. During her high school year, she quickly discovered her two greatest passions, artistic expression and the universe. At first, she contemplated going to art school and even prepared a portfolio for her application. But in the end, she chose to move to Cambridge and to pursue a degree in natural sciences. To this day, she still tries to combine her artistic side with her scientific one. On the one hand, her studies of black holes and star formation inspire her artistic work with water-based paint on silk. On the other, she uses her knowledge about colour theory and form to make the visual aids in her publications more accessible and meaningful. However, her long-term goal is not just to study space, she also wants to visit it and become an astronaut. We will chat with her about walking the fine line between observational cosmology and numerical methods, the importance of outreach communication in science, but also the skills required to become an astronaut and how she's preparing for it. Stay with us. Well, welcome, Jana. Thanks for being here. Um, you're actually our first astrophysicist on the show. Uh, and I think astrophysics might be one of the most suggestive and fascinating fields of physics. Can you tell us where your fascination with the universe comes from? Um, thanks a lot for having me here. Um, thank you for the invitation. And I do agree that astrophysics has this extra extra superb uh, sci-fi uh, aspect to it. And that's exactly where fascination in astronomy and astrophysics comes from for me. Um, the first time I ever looked up in the sky was in conjunction with a Scientific American article. I literally saw a beautiful picture that showed the universe and I got fascinated. I read, read in, of course, quotation marks, um, uh, the article and decided to start looking up in the sky. That was probably at the age of 11 or so. Uh, so uh, it was mostly visual. Can you tell us a bit about your background, where you were born and raised and your experience in high school? Yeah, I was born in Warsaw, born and raised actually, all the way until the age of 19 when I left for uh, for the university. I um, liked switching schools, so every time I had to move up the educational ladder, uh, I moved to a different school, which exposed me to a lot of different people and interests. Um, and while uh, pursuing all those interests and meeting those people, I also got hooked up on astronomy through the Polish Association of Amateur Astronomers, um, who showed me the world of observing the sky without knowing much about it, being perfectly honest. So it was mostly visual again. However, it gave me the big, big introductory step to understanding how to observe the sky before understanding it. And um, so what kind of things did you do during these meetings with the uh, Astronomic Association? 
Um, this was um, a mix of things, really. When the weather was good, we would do actual observations. So there was a telescope on top of the building that we could use to observe planets mostly, because Warsaw doesn't have <laughs> perfect observing uh, observing opportunities. So we would mostly observe planets um, somewhere around the age of thirteen, I think. I've seen Saturn for the first time in my life, and that was um, that was a very emotional experience. Um, it's difficult to explain to someone who hasn't looked through a telescope, but uh, it is um, it is something absolutely one-of-a-kind experience understanding that it is there it's different seeing pictures on the internet and seeing it through your own eyes or the telescope so we would observe that's one thing another thing we would go on camps observation camps uh, around Poland and that is where I learned how to use a telescope properly because all the members all the senior members would bring their own equipment and they would show me how to use it and how to take pictures of the night sky Wonderful. And uh, through this association, you also met uh, a Polish astronaut, I believe. Uh, what was that experience like? Yes, so that happened at one of those uh, events, um, those trips, uh, and I met uh, Mirosław Hermaszewski. And the only Polish, actually not an astronaut, I believe we call them cosmonauts. <laughs> cosmonaut. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Polish cosmonaut. And uh, he gave a lecture, um, and then we had an opportunity to chat, and it was like meeting a personal idol. So. I am, as you as you mentioned at the beginning, I want to become an astronaut, and I believe every kid wants to become an astronaut at some point. But this dream sort of stayed with me, and when I met Mirosław Hermaszewski, it got lit on fire again. Um, he was a living proof that a person can go to space, return healthy, and also, most importantly, be Polish. So, um, so that was, as I've said, like meeting a personal idol, a personal hero. Yeah, yeah. I can I can see that. Um, so I want to go back to uh, what you said about being inspired by the sky and that kind of experience, which was almost uh, also artistic in a way, right? Because in high school, you also were prepping actually to go to uh, art school. You were doing a lot of artistic expression through uh, uh, paint on silk, um, and you also prepared a portfolio for it. So uh, how was that evolution into art? And at the end, what made you change your mind and then eventually pursue physics? Um, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think before I say anything else, I believe in order to do to pursue arts and to pursue um, astrophysics, one needs the same ability to take a step back and uh, and look at the big picture. So both in art, you have to have a um, you have to have a design, a plan in order to approach. Uh, in, to, in order to approach your work and same um, similar applies to observations in astronomy just because the universe is not an experiment you can design it's an experiment you can well it's a live experiment that you can only observe hence I believe you need the exact same skills for both mm -hmm. but um, the way it evolved for me um, I started off with arts really rather than astronomy and um, and what fascinated me both about arts and astronomy was the play of shape and color. Yes, now everyone will tell me that telescopes see in black and white, I agree, but the <laughs> images but the images I've seen from Hubble were obviously um, were obviously uh, color saturated with fake color. So um, what it what it did to me through through understanding of color theory while painting and preparing my portfolio, um, I sort of have an idea of how different colors in the universe correspond to different elements of it or different physics behind them just because I could compose images from layers of colors to represent shadow 
light, happiness, and sadness, I could similarly translate that to astronomy, where different colors represent hot and cold gas, gas that's moving and the gas that's just there, or stars that are just there shining. Lovely. And uh, it echoes a little bit what uh, Suchitra said when we interviewed her early in this series about the relationship between her work in science and her enthusiasm for the arts in a very different way. But also, so I think it's nice to see how you know, it's two sides of people, isn't it, that, uh, that are sort of mutually reinforcing rather than this divide that people like to put between science and art. So uh, in the end, you decided to study physics at Cambridge. Now, why did you decide to study physics over art? What was the motivation there? And uh, what was your experience of coming to the UK and studying at a, a fairly sort of... Uh, oldie world institution like the University of Cambridge. Okay, so um, I need to uh, I need to put a big disclaimer here. Uh, while in uh, middle and high school, I was I was struggling with one particular subject, and the subject was physics. So all the other ones came sort of sort of easily, uh, including mathematics, English, and whatever subject I studied. And I can't. Blame. I think I should blame the teachers, but at the same time, I can't do that because it's uh, you know they, they didn't proper, maybe they didn't receive proper training or physics is intrinsically hard to talk about. So there was one subject I struggled with, and when I went to high school, I met very inspiring people who wanted to go abroad, um, Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge, Oxford, and name it. They wanted to go there. I was hoping to just go to Warsaw, to the Warsaw um, Warsaw Arts Art School. The, Art University of Warsaw to pursue a graphics degree and then they inspired me to apply somewhere else and why they while they inspired me to apply somewhere else I thought hmm I have a chance of pursuing either a degree in physics the subject I don't understand and can understand in detail through university and at the same time keep art as a hobby close of mine or I could do the other way around and try to keep physics as a hobby and then I guess a natural choice was to go the first avenue and hence I applied. I obviously wasn't hoping I would get into Cambridge, come on. <laughs> but I still, I still did. If you aim high, you, the, the worst that can happen, you can, you can end up somewhere in the middle, right? So um, by an off chance, I made it here and then I stayed. So truth be told, it was, a, it was a choice of the subject that I found most hard and I wanted to learn it in great detail. Lovely. It's nice to hear about the sort of I think a lot of people seem to get this idea that as a physicist, you're naturally talented at it and you're, you, know, you just sort of waltz through for the entire life, whereas actually you know, you, it, the uh, the challenge of it drew you to it. Now, when you came to Cambridge, was it the first time you'd come to the UK? Was it? Uh... Uh, that was back in 2014. So yeah. I was 19 years old. And I think the previous question was also how I found the first time, uh, first time here in the UK, <laughs> right? Um, so that was a big culture shock. Um, First of all, I encountered two different taps, one for hot and one for cold water. <laughs> I think that's like a universal shock for everybody who moves to the UK. <laughs> I can tell as a foreigner as well. <laughs> there you go. So that's uh, that stayed with me until present day. I haven't had a single fat with you know a single uh, with a single combined tap, but that's a separate story. Um, so that was a big uh, cultural shock. Most importantly, uh, finding yourself in an environment where you can't speak your uh, mother tongue. Mm. It was the first time for me to live abroad. So that was scary. And learning physics in English was also scary. But I had supportive friends. So um, the Gerton community, my college community, embraced me and helped me go through the first difficult weeks. But uh, it was obviously a challenge. Now I feel more or less at home. But it was, uh, it was quite a struggle to start with. And when you started physics, did you have a clear idea of what sort of path through physics you wanted to take? Or was this something that developed over your time as, uh, as you studied it? I think the fascination of the universe was there from square one. And I believe I'm uh, the only one in my 
year in college, uh, in my college, that decided to pursue this path at the beginning and stayed with it. So other people <laughs> fell in love with geology or material science. I decided to stay with astrophysics. And one thing, and one thing that particularly attracted me to um, to the subject I study was uh, the beauty of mathematical descriptions that I thought of at, at the time, and they were beautiful, self-consistent, and pretty. Uh, pretty simplistic. Now, when you obviously pursue a PhD, uh, things <laughs> are not as beautiful and clear uh, as they seemed, but that was one of the things that mostly attracted me to astrophysics, the beauty of mathematical description. Oh, that's the problem with physics, isn't it? You have to tie the mathematics to the real world, and the real world's not quite so nice and consistent as maths is. It's not so idealized. <laughs> yeah. And nobody tells you that before you start your PhD, do they? <laughs> So in your graduate studies, you start to study more advanced subjects in astrophysics, such as fluid dynamics, cosmology, and you also start to learn numerical methods, right? And uh, to this day, uh, simulation is a big part of your research. Um, so how was your experience with that other side of physics, that kind of untold side of coding and simulations? Oh, that was, that is until present day, my favorite part. Mm -hmm. uh, discretizing the universe is um, both a is a great challenge, an exciting challenge, and it comes with obviously with its own set of difficulties. I, uh, to me, learning a coding language per se is just like learning English or any other any other language. I jokingly say that I speak Python on daily basis, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so that wasn't a problem at all. But understanding the limitations of your computation and when your solutions are stable or not, that took. An extra leap and that's what i explored at the um, los alamos national laboratory in the states where i developed um, a um, pseudospectral uh, scheme to treat um, uh, to treat shocks in fluids uh, but without getting too technical the idea was uh, understanding the numerical limitations uh, of a method and i find that very interesting and can you comment a bit on that aspect that we just talked about about astrophysics being kind of this melting pot of all the different kind of fields in physics right you have fluid dynamics you have cosmology you have uh, quantum physics you have everything put in put together right so how do you deal with that frankly it's overwhelming <laughs> <laughs> you start your you start your galaxy evolution phd and the first thing the first thing i was given to read was another a graduated PhD student's thesis, literally a, an introduction. There you have it, that's your introduction to the field. I swear, every time I opened a new subchapter, I had to grab a different textbook, <laughs> whether it was, uh, whether it was um, quantum, uh, quantum mechanics or whether it was uh, you know, some books on atomic physics. Fluid dynamics was the easiest part out of it because that's something I studied for my master's too, so I felt comfortable with it. But everything else, uh, a totally different, a totally different universe. So bottom line is, it's confusing, it's difficult, and it requires um, it requires um, excellent um, excellent memory because sometimes, in order to have a feel for what you expect to see in your results, you have to have a very good grasp, at least superficially, of all of those field of all of those fields combined. And frankly speaking, it's a little bit overwhelming to me. That's why for my postdoc, I'm scaling down from whole galaxy evolution. So just the evolution of galactic centers, i.e. supermassive black holes and their accretion disks. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. So you really have to have such a wide range of skills and see connections between like very distant uh, subfields sub of physics and learning how to merge uh, all of them. It's not so, so easy. 
yeah, it's nice to hear about physicists working across many things as well, because you get lots of people who just focus on one very small uh, sort of subset of a subset of physics. Now, you started your PhD uh, looking at the influence of supermassive black holes on star formation in galaxies. What drew you to that? Oh, um, hmm. that's uh, that's a very good question. I think the question should be rephrased. What drew my supervisors to do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, being perfect, being perfectly frank, when you're a starting PhD student, you do not have much influence on what you want to do. I had um, I had a choice on how I wanted to approach the question, but not what the question was. And I did um, well. I I'm interested in black holes. I'm interested in galaxies. It sounded like a very good marriage of topics. Um, however, I did uh, have a choice in uh, using the methodology. So my break was adding, um, pursuing a uh, machine learning approach to to understanding these um, these processes. But uh, frank answer is um, the project was somehow chosen for me. <laughs> but no regrets there. Uh, it stayed with me throughout the entire course of my PhD. Excellent. And in our sort of pre-chat, you mentioned that there was quite a steep learning curve. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, so I did a master's in astrophysics, but that was only by label. <laughs> I didn't take a single course on observational astronomy or galaxies or cosmology for that matter. And I believe in hindsight, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Uh, in hindsight, <laughs> that was a mistake. I was thrown into this um, into this world of uh, complex physics, thermodynamics, and, uh, and, and numerics combined. And uh, all I've mentioned about reading this introductory PhD thesis, I had to grab a textbook every time I wanted to learn something. And it was also overwhelming that to postdocs in the field, some things that I wanted to ask about were obvious to an extent that they didn't know where to find this information because it was so deeply ingrained in their expertise. So uh, it was a steep learning curve and a very good exercise in using online library resources. <laughs> That's something that I can relate to because a lot of times you read like thesis or uh, some other work, some publications, and then there's so much that is just assumed. assumed. Yes. And it's kind of like this knowledge that is collectively known, but nobody kind of explicitly puts out there. So you have to kind of bring the pieces together. Yeah. Absolutely. And it is, um, I believe it is particularly true, true of all of physics that you will have this result from back in 1960s that everybody assumes is true. Yeah. And then you try to find the paper and the paper actually says something slightly different. And then someone put a thick tilde in front of it and um, and approximated it somehow and now all of the world uses this approximation. That was very difficult to me and until present day it is something I find difficult to find peace with. Um, hence yet another reason to sort of move away from the field. It's not the statement about galaxy evolution, it's a statement about me not being comfortable with it. So just to be clear, uh, <laughs> it's an incredible field but a bit overwhelming to me. I think it's quite a contrast between this idea of that people have a physics of it being all neat sort of equations and everything's rigid and understood comprehensively, whereas actually it's a reference to a reference to a reference that's actually paraphrased, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the theory of everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned that you uh, walk the thin line between observational astrophysics and simulations. Could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that phrase? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so in my work, I combine both, um, uh, both numerical simulations and observations. What I mean by walking a thin line is that I try to stick exactly in between. Um, so uh, I equally acknowledge the importance of the simulated and observed universes. And it is not um, a 
not it is not a big trend but a rising trend in the field to uh, understand both the theory and observations because traditionally astrophysicists are either numerical or observational and there is a big <laughs> divide between them but my goal for the PhD and I hopefully stuck to that was walking in between and merging the two fields and uh, in order to do that yet again you have to spread yourself thinner because you have to understand the limitations of your computation and theory you put in the universe in a box and understanding <laughs> the limitations of your instruments so that was incredibly hard for me on the instrument side. I do not mind the simulations, that's sort of the background I come from, but understanding the limitations of the instruments came, uh, came at a hard, steep price of a, of a learning curve, yes. And you mentioned as well that you use publicly available data for your research as well, and I mean that's something that uh, was a bit of a surprise to me, I thought it, was, it would all be sort of gathered in-house, but actually it's uh, stuff that's just out there. That is something I take a lot of pride in, that uh, the uh, the work I've done it can be uh, easily reproduced by um, by the whole community to an extent that uh, whenever I can with uh, a published paper, I also publish a uh, perfectly reproducible code snippet for everyone to exactly reproduce my results. That is something that hit me hard as a PhD student starting in this complex field, that I would read a paper and would not be able to follow the method, although the paper uh, passed a series of reviews and made it to a published domain. I found it extremely difficult and the way I write my papers and that I take that exactly from my directly from my supervisors who are very keen on that, I make sure that everything is um, everything is uh, reproducible. So the bottom line is um, I find um, I find publicly available data extremely important in research in physics and I would encourage everybody to publish their results for the sake of advancing science faster than guarding things in-house. And you also mentioned something very interesting to me that uh, you're trying to gather uh, all your uh, um, information and try to formulate all your theories and your results from just one source of data, which is just light, right? Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. So that's the thing I struggle um, a lot with on a daily basis, because as you've said, the only information we have about the universe is light. And that light contains information about the dynamics, the chemical composition, the, the atomic nuclear processes, uh, high energy physics, everything combined. And in order to decipher all of that, we have to have a good handle on theoretical modeling of the light that we see. And that relies on a set of assumptions and decades of work in the field. And I admire all the progress that has been made, but that is a never ending challenge because sometimes you can throw the same spectrum into different codes and get entirely different results. <laughs> it's like having just a spoon and then you have to do everything with that spoon. You have to build buildings with that spoon. You have to just dig tunnels with the spoon. And then the spoon is the only thing you have. Exactly. And it turns out that some groups hold the spoon one way and the other is not the spoon the other yeah. way around. And you mix differently and then the result is different. Some buildings are wonky and some <laughs> outright fall apart, you know. And you mentioned earlier you're moving on to a, a postdoc at Caltech looking at accretion disks around black holes. Now, is this something you've chosen or is this supervisors again? Or uh, <laughs> what's your motivation for moving towards that sort of thing? Oh, um, that's a very good question. Uh, accretion disks have always been um, close to me conceptually. I actually did my master's focusing on um, supermassive black hole binaries surrounded by circumbinary accretion disk. So uh, fluid dynamics especially at high energies, have always been close to my heart. And the reason why I moved to disks themselves is 
because you can observe them, or they get very hot, and you can observe them in X-ray. At these energy levels, there isn't much other physics that can get in their way, so that ties back to this complex modeling of light. At this, at these energies, it's mostly the black hole accretion disks, so we we can easily, more easily disentangle different physics at play rather than throwing the stars and gas and dust and <laughs> God knows what else from uh, from the galaxy perspective. So how does that work? So the black hole sits at the middle and there's this whole gas cloud around and then because of gravity, just like thrown around and then accelerated and then it emits energy? So uh, the way it works, uh, well, uh, the way it works, you've got a black hole in the center and is a gas cloud around uh, and and the gas, of course, is collapsing onto the black hole, but because there's angular momentum in the system, i.e. the gas is in motion with respect to the black hole, instead of falling directly, it settles into an accretion disk. And as the gas uh, interacts within the accretion disk through viscosity, it loses uh, its angular momentum, loses its gravitational potential, and this uh, energy gain has to go somewhere. It heats up and emits radiation. Uh, well, it gets uh, heated up to an order of a million of degrees uh, in temperature, extremely hot, and at these hot temperatures, it does emit this X-ray um, X-ray radiation. And then you would go back to just having that one source of data, which is the light that is emitted. Yeah, exactly. But this time, this time, it is one source from one physical emitter, as opposed yeah. to gas, dust, stars, and so it's more um, focused data. Yes, exactly, more focused data. Perfectly said. And now we'll take a short break from the interview to bring you a new snippet from the recent research at the Cavendish. This month's research update is all about terahertz technologies. Terahertz waves are a type of electromagnetic radiation. So if we think to the electromagnetic spectrum, terahertz frequencies lie between infrared light and microwave radiation. Currently, there is a lack of sources and detectors that work in this frequency range, which limits the widespread use of terahertz technologies. And why is this technology so interesting? Well, it allows us to see and study materials in a new light, so it's very interesting for developing non-invasive and non-destructive imaging techniques. This is very exciting for medical imaging and pharmaceutical analysis, because imaging using terahertz waves often delivers much less power than imaging with other types of radiation. Terahertz waves are also non-ionizing, which means that they don't have the harmful effects that x-rays, for example, have on human tissue or DNA. Different materials give different spectral responses when excited with terahertz waves, each having their own fingerprint, which means that terahertz waves can be used to detect unidentified substances, which is important for security, for example, for detecting explosive or dangerous substances, as well as for applications in food, agricultural, and air quality control. Terahertz devices also have applications in wireless communication, high-speed data processing, and other areas in information and communication technologies. In a recent study published in Science Advances, researchers from the Semiconductor Physics Group here at the Cavendish, together with collaborators from Lancaster and Osberg, have published the discovery of a new phenomenon that they have named the in-plane photoelectric effect. The discovery of this quantum photoexcitation process in the terahertz range reveals a new physical mechanism that could be used to create terahertz detectors with significantly higher sensitivity than before. These results are an exciting breakthrough, and in the words of Professor David Ritchie, one of the senior authors of the paper, these results bring us one step closer to making terahertz technology usable in the real world. Check out the links in the description to learn more about this, or head directly to our website for the full news article.
And we're back with Joanna Piotrowska discussing her experience as a young astrophysicist. Uh, I want to go back to the topic of art for a bit because although you didn't pursue uh, full-time artistic education, you still find ways of combining art and science. Uh, can you tell us uh, a bit about that? Yes, of course. So in my spare time, I still uh, pursue art as a hobby, as a as means to relax. And as part of that, I mostly paint on silk, either on um, sheets of silk or sometimes silk ties. So I make little pieces of garment for uh, for friends and family. And uh, art has also helped me in producing visual aids for um, especially outreach. It turns out that well, it's not a surprise that image sometimes speaks more than a thousand words. So um, creating a powerful visual for kids and adults alike can plant a proper physical understanding before the mathematical description comes later. So I find that art influences my outreach and it does my talks too. So even <laughs> if you talk to scientists, if you have nicely presented visuals uh, with your slides, it really helps to get the message across. Absolutely, yeah. It's kind of put the seed of curiosity as well, like in like little kids, and then they grow up being fascinated by, by the topic. Um, so I want to talk about how to approach outreach for scientists, because they tend to be very skilled in their subject. They know all about the math and the simulations and everything, but receive very little training in how to present their results. Um, do you have any suggestions on how to improve scientific communication given your background, specifically regarding uh, visual data presentation? Oh, um, that is obviously a hard nut to crack. Um, again, the, the problem you've identified, knowing the field very, very well and not being able to take tens of thousands of step backs, <laughs> steps back <laughs> to understand what a kid being, thinks. Um, I think my first immediate suggestion would be um, having courses run by presentation professionals at universities who would help scientists in designing their slides. And I'm not talking about how to give a good presentation and present yourself. That's one part of it. But actual visual artists who are trained in um, in media messaging to help uh, to help scientists um, build their own slides or provide ready-made solutions for basic physical concepts like mm -hmm. animations or or images that can then, uh, stick in children's minds. So I think that would be great university-wide uh, across uh, across the community. You mentioned the importance of color, combining the right colors, combining the right shapes. How do you do it? Um, so per being perfectly honest, it comes quite naturally to me. I've been called a good colorist, which means I do have a knack for uh, understanding which colors play off one another well. But there are a lot of online tools that I also use, like the Adobe Color Wheel or free of charge resources that help me combine color theory with understanding um, visual uh, impairments like uh, color blindness to create striking visuals that are understood by a broad community. That's one thing I am very serious about in my both outreach and scientific work, being accessible to everyone who reads my plots and my results. That's very important because at the end you want the information to be conveyed, right? And if it's not accessible, then nobody's going to understand it. So uh, it kind of beats the purpose of putting it out there. Exactly. And um, I don't know about other fields of physics, but in astronomy and astrophysics, we do tend to have multiple data sets on a single, on a single plot and creating a clear visual using color is extremely important and something that many of my peers struggle with. 
So within our group, actually, I, uh, I even held a small presentation on how to, <laughs> how to make your plots uh, accessible and your presentations accessible. And until now, uh, I think uh, my fellow PhD students uh, are really grateful for you know, uh, getting access to all of these resources. Absolutely. Lovely. Now, you're an astrophysicist by trade, but you mentioned that your dream was to become an astronaut or cosmonaut, depending on which, uh, yeah, which side of the line you come. Uh, how long have you had this career goal? Um, <laughs> um, since I was uh, a kid, but then kids also want to be jockeys, firefighters and policemen, right? <laughs> so uh, I wanted to be an astronaut um, and then I met Miroslav Hermashevsky, so that kind of uh, stayed with me. But jokes aside, it really became an opportunity the moment that ESA opened its recruitment because it made me realize that space is no longer restricted to fighter jet pilots and skilled marines. It, there's also a place for scientists who do have the appropriate physical, uh, physical preparation. So since I think it was 2019 that they've, uh, or 2018 that they, um, that they uh, introduced this idea of future recruitment for astronauts, um, it, it really came it really came to life and in order to become an astronaut uh, I started taking good care of you know uh, my uh, my physical activity and developing other skills needed like for example scuba diving yes I mean as you mentioned I think most people at some point in their life have wanted to be an astronaut I know I certainly did but then it seems this sort of unachievable goal that only superhumans can play what sort of steps have you taken to get close towards that goal and what sort of you know what sort of path have you, have you found as a sort of uh, a one that takes you from being you know, a normal person who's excited about uh, be, you know, uh, visiting space and actually being able to do that? So for starters, I've chosen the correct subject. <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm a PhD in space-related uh, space science, uh, most importantly in STEM. Uh, so that's, uh, I believe, the, th that's, where, that's where a scientist should be, or a doctor either a STEM uh, scientist or a doctor. And then, uh, apart from that, uh, I am a very passionate scuba diver. And as, as it turns out, as astronauts uh, mostly train underwater to you know, account for this foreign environment that you cannot breathe in and also get the uh, lower G effect. <laughs> so, um, so that I am, um, I am happy about. Once I, um, once I finally manage to get enough financial stability, I would also like to become a, a private pilot to get an idea for what it is like to fly a plane. Again, it's not a strict requirement, but I need to be able to become a pilot. And I do meet the medical requirements, I've checked. <laughs> so I do have a stamp of approval uh, for my, um, um, for my um, medical exam, but I'm not a pilot yet. So that's the next, uh, the next big step, becoming, uh, becoming a pilot. So uh, nowadays we're seeing a renewed interest in spaceflight, uh, particularly with a split between the private sector and places like the European Space Agency that you mentioned earlier. Uh, which path do you see yourself going down and uh, how do you think that's going to influence the sort of future travel to space? So um, given my financial situation, I think it's fair to say <laughs> I am going with the public route. <laughs> I guess unless you're a billionaire like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, probably... Or an influencer who wants to yeah. get, yeah. Or that's... Captain Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. So uh, probably, probably the public route, um, which also means, um, <clears throat> well, there is an extra layer to it because I would like to be a trained astronaut rather than astro-tourist, yeah. mm. if that makes you sense. You just want to be a visitor, like, uh, yeah, you just want to no. be there and do some work. Exactly. I want to <clears throat> put, my, uh, put my foot on the moon and build a base. That's what I would like to do. So, um, so definitely the public sector and the way it would potentially influence spaceflight um, 
I believe the current the current idea of the public sector is to build international collaborations with uh, semi-permanent basis on um, the nearest um, astrophysical bodies, hence on the moon. So um, I think the future of spacelight is tourism for those who can afford it mm -hmm. and um, creating an outpost on the moon for those <clears throat> who can't or countries in general. So these outposts, do you see them being along the same sort of lines as uh, Arctic exploration nowadays, where you've got these sort of um, you know, national bases dotted around, a little bit of international collaboration, but there's you know, there's sort of there's a Russian base, there's a British base, there's the American base, and uh, yeah, what's what's just as someone who's sort of very interested in the field, I'll be curious as to how you how you see these developing. Mm, so um, the ideal answer, the one I would hope for, is a single international unit across all countries. Given the current political situation, it is highly unlikely. Mm. So I would imagine there will be three main hubs. Um, the uh, Euro-American hub, the Chinese hub, and the Russian hub, if I were to predict anything. But then again, I'm no expert, far removed. <laughs> I, do not, <laughs> I do not work in any of the agencies. But uh, ideally, I would love all of humanity to come together and create a single outpost. That's uh, yeah, a beautiful idea. Let's hope that the political situation will improve soon so that we can actually reach this goal. Indeed. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Joanna, for being our guest. It was uh, very fun. Uh, we wish you all the best for your future endeavor and uh, uh, dream to become an astronaut. Um, thank you very much for having me. Um, I hope um, I hope I managed to share a couple of interesting things about uh, astrophysics. And to anyone who's listening, I would like to pursue their dream of either becoming an astronaut or a STEM subject PhD. Do it. The worst that can happen is you're going to have a fantastic life. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. You must say it better myself. Thank you very much. Thanks to our guest, Joanna Petrovska, and to our producer, Chris, for this episode. The news today were brought to you by Simone. If you want to learn more about what's being discussed in this episode, or why not want to join us or study with us at the Cavendish, go to phy.can.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We would love to put your questions to our team of physicists. Send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye! Mm -hmm.